We praise you, Father, that it is well with our souls this morning as we come and delight in the day of the Lord. In the Lord's day, O Lord, bring your people together rejoicing, Father, and let us indeed rest in our spirits knowing that the Holy Spirit is among us and will teach us this morning, make us attentive to his teaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask you to open to Romans 8. Paul's epistle to the Roman church of the first century. We're in chapter 8. Once again, we're going to look at verses 18 through 23 this morning. Come a long way in this epistle. We've got a long way to go. But we're in chapter 8, verse 18. And so the apostle Paul writes to the Roman church, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. But the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Our Father, we pray that you would add your presence to the reading and proclamation of this, your holy word this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul has reached a conclusion. After all the doctrine that he taught us, after the, the whole concept of justification, of our forgiveness in Christ, and that he's present with us in our sanctification, that is, as we grow up in Christ and walk through this life, he's come to a great conclusion here that though we suffer, though these Roman Christians were suffering and being persecuted for their faith in their day, that the suffering of the present time wasn't worthy to be compared with the glory which was to come. And we labored over this concept somewhat last week. We spoke about the inevitable suffering that all men undergo. Friends, life is hard. There are times of great rejoicing and great festivity and fellowship. But there are times when life is difficult. And sometimes these two things intermingle, don't they? Suffering, as the apostle presented it to us, is preparation for glory. It's going to happen. It happens to everyone. It's prophesied, and I think we're all probably at this point in our lives well aware of the different types of suffering that we undergo in this sin-cursed world of ours. Suffering, we said, was the effect of sin and disobedience to God. That's how it came about. But glory... The future glory is the effect of faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins. Friends, glory is the inevitable outcome of faith in Christ. You can't help it. It's a machine. It's a juggernaut. You're going towards glory. You will get there. 
Some of us will get there kicking and screaming, and some of us will get there with a lot less noise, perhaps, but we're all going to get there in faith if we have faith in Christ. Suffering first, and then glory. Yet, as the apostle noted, there's a certain glory for the Christian even in the suffering. Even while the tribulation of the moment is happening, there's a glory in that. God said to Ananias that he will show Paul how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. If anyone was going to be exempt for suffering, you'd think it would be a man like Paul. The apostle Peter and John, after being severely beaten for preaching Christ, we read, so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his sake. Friends, when I first came into the faith, there was a book that went around. It's sitting on my desk right now. It's by a man named Richard Wormbrand. Remember Richard Wormbrand? Anyone? Famous book called Tortured for Christ. Everyone had to read it. It's on my desk. If you'd like to read it, I'll give it to you. It was about a man in a Soviet concentration camp in Romania back during the Iron Curtain years. And he was tortured so badly, he chronicled it in there. He came to Christ. His wife came to Christ. Sure enough, they came out eventually, were released, and started a great ministry called The Voice of the Martyrs. Anyone ever get Voice of the Martyrs magazine? Um, Everyone in those days had to recognize that being a Christian was something that you would suffer for, but it was worth suffering for. Paul wrote of it plainly in chapter 5 where he said, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. In other words, suffering produces something in us. There's a certain value, a spiritual badge of honor to those who stand for Christ and endure a a portion of that suffering that he endured. Now, there's suffering that due to the fall, all men must endure. It's a thing that all men endure. We all suffer the same sadnesses. We all suffer the same types of sicknesses. We all grieve over the loss of loved ones. All these are types of of suffering that are endemic to the whole race. And even though we share in these things with unbelievers, it's these same things that lead to the suffering that only believers endure. See, we have our own brand of suffering. And it begins with, at least for me, see if you feel as I do, the suffering for the Christian begins with this lingering frustration with the world and our situation in it, that's totally due to our regeneration. You know, before I was saved, I was fairly happy with the world and the way things were going. Faith, though it offers access to the things of God, faith gives us access to the mind of Christ, the thoughts and the will of God, it brings with it a certain frustration. For having now come to the knowledge of the truth, it comes with the unsettling reality That though we know the truth and are freed by it, and we're saved by it, that those around us cannot see it as we do. I remember when I first came to Christ and I was so zealous for everyone to hear, but they knew what I was like and they just couldn't take it from my hand. They thought, well, Danny's been into other things, this is a new thing, and he'll get over this and he'll stop barking about 
the Bible and the gospel and all these things. And they started to see a change in me, and I started to get better. I led a more moral, stable existence. And then what did they say? They said, well, it's been good for you. Your faith has been good for you. It still, it has nothing for me, but it's still good for you. There's a frustration in that, isn't there? Have you ever felt that? I feel it all the time. There's a wonderful, glorious aspect of knowing the truth of God and wholeheartedly believing in the promises of God for redemption, but there's also an emptiness that comes with it with regard to sharing the faith with others. How did Solomon say it? He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. There is a sorrow that comes with knowing that so many whom we have loved, whom we have witnessed to, will perish apart from faith in Jesus Christ. There's a great suffering that goes along with that. It's as if the sighted of the world, those with eyes to see, struggle to get the blind to see what they see. We have this sight. We have this vision of Christ. He's very real to us. His will's been made known to us inwardly. And we have this drive to make other people see it, but spiritually they are blind. They are dead in trespasses and sin. There's a great frustration in this. We think we can convince them, and we find that we can't. And even though we know that they've yet to be blessed with the spiritual equipment to see what we see, they still do not see it. They simply cannot see, friends, and we can't make them see. And we must assuage our frustrations by appealing to the sovereignty of God in such things. All we can do is to preach and to teach and to pray and to plead and to converse and to be a good moral witness in life. But our pleading is not effectual apart from the movement of God upon their spirits. And so we read from 1 Corinthians, so then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. We have to keep this principle ever in our minds. We are the farmers, we plant the seeds, but we have no power to cause the growth of the seed. That comes from God. But yet we still do it, and we don't weary in it. Because God who appointed those to eternal life also appointed the means. And the means is that those who know the gospel preach the gospel. We have our duty to proclaim the truth as it was proclaimed to us. And that still is the only way to receive the truth. But until God moves upon the heart of the hearer, they remain unseeing, unsaved, and unconvinced. How did James say it? Remove all filthiness and overflow of, of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. The farmer has to plant. It's implanted. The implanted word saves the soul. That's still the only way to receive the word. Faith cometh by hearing, the Bible says. Hearing by the word of God. And so some of this resultant suffering comes with the nagging frustration that we cannot make them see. We cannot make a person believe, and their unbelief is, causes us to suffer. The suffering peculiar to the Christian is the result of claiming a truth that the world around us cannot see. Paul spoke of it repeatedly throughout his epistles. To the Corinthians, he said, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. How many times have you encountered 
that dynamic in your witnessing. Nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. You can't study your way into the kingdom of God. It's a miracle of God upon a human soul when that happens. He said to the Romans, when he spoke of the limitations of the natural mind, he called it, remember, the carnal mind. He said, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Friends, we're born with minds at enmity with God. We're born adversaries to God. And so they see us in a different way. They see us as arrogant. They see us as judgmental. And who can blame them? When we say that Jesus is the only way to God, they find that very arrogant, very partisan, very parochial. And not very fair. We like fairness in our culture, don't we? So they see us as judgmental. They see us as claiming something about ourselves. Friends, something that we don't even claim about ourselves. They think that we, we think we're special. They think that we think we're morally superior. We don't think any of those things. Pastor Ken used to say, you're not better. You're better off, but you're not better. And so we don't think we're better. But they think we think that because we say we're saved and you're not. There's a frustration in all of this kind of thing. Remember when God sent Moses to Pharaoh? And he said, but he won't listen to me. God essentially said, I know he won't listen to you. But you're going anyway. And you're going to tell him what I said anyway. And so Moses went. And after all the plagues and the plague of darkness and the plague of killing the firstborn of every household, still they did not receive the word of God from Moses. There's a frustration in that. There's a suffering aspect in that. They think we're saying that we're saved of ourselves. They persecute us and ridicule us because we speak against established views. As I was saying earlier, we speak against so-called scientific things. Friends, remember something when we talk about creation versus evolution. It takes great faith to believe in either one of those things. And I'll say here, let me help you with the suspense. You can't prove either one. Do you ever notice God wants to be known by faith? He will not be proven. You have to believe him because he said so. So what is called science, friends, is really just a theory, never been proven. And any good scientist should not believe in it because it's not proven. You believe in laws of nature. You don't believe in theories. You test theories. We speak against Politically correct views, in other words, the view of the day, the view du jour, you might call it. We speak against what's now called woke views, as though we're the ones who are asleep. You know, I heard a very famous political strategist the other day. Anyone remember James Carville? <laughs> he worked for the Clintons years ago. Celebrated liberal. But he won't go so far with liberals today as the woke views, that we don't know what a man is, we don't know what a woman is, we don't know if women or men can have babies, we're not sure. He won't go that far, and he thinks it's a weakness in the party, and so he said in his inimitable Louisiana Cajun fashion, he said, I think these woke people ought to take a nap. <laughs> Little does he know they're napping. And I'm not saying that because he's a great prophet. But he did say it's the economy, stupid. He's the one that coined the phrase. So um, 
They act as though we're the ones that aren't woken up to reality. Friends, Jesus predicted this very thing when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, remember this, right after the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for though they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Jesus encourages us to even rejoice in that kind of suffering, in that kind of opposition. Even those who do not share our political views, and I do not suppose that we all walk lockstep to any one political ideology. But they've separated themselves from some of the deep blindness of their political partners. Their views of life and liberty are the dreams of their soul's sleep. Indeed, the further and further our society slips into depraved thinking of the present time, the further and further Christian thinking is marginalized, and we have to take special care that we don't fall into it. I see it all the time. I see Christian people all the time falling into some of these new views and these new tolerances. We've mistaken tolerance for love for generations now. Even parents know that's not what you do. You don't just tolerate anything the child does. That's not love. In fact, the Bible calls it hate. He who spares the rod hateth his son. I heard a southern preacher say that one time. <laughs> said, the man that spareth the rod hateth his son. My daddy loved me. <laughs> Friends, we're becoming marginalized. And it's going to happen more and more. We can expect this kind of thing. But remember the words of Jesus. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad when they say these things. So Romans, well, Romans 1 rather told us that God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. We're seeing that en masse in our nation today. And heaven help anyone who tells them that their behaviors are not fitting in the eyes of God. Heaven help anyone who tells them that they've been given up by God, set adrift in a vile sea of moral emptiness. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness, Paul wrote, in the lusts of their hearts. Friends, if you want to celebrate these strange sexual habits, God gave them up to their own uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Friends, he's talking about this to the Rome of the first century. They're struggling with the same sort of moral depravity we are in this century. Man has not improved. Friends, you heard it here first. Man has not evolved. We're the same. I think it was one of the Rocky movies where Rocky's son said to him, Dad, people change. He said, no, the, the, the clothes change. The people are just the same. Surely this moral chasm between the seeing and the unseeing of this world, between the saved and the unsaved, is widening as we speak. And do not believe that there's no suffering for the believer on the other end of it. There always is, at least historically there is. There was for Richard Wormbrandt. They're determined to make our moral outrage our undoing. How dare you even say or think that what I'm doing offends God? And such is the suffering of the Christian. The world doesn't suffer that, friends. 
And such is the glory in the Christian who endures the suffering. Be of good cheer, the Savior said. The suffering we endure is endured not only by us, not only by the church, but by all of creation. Friends, we couldn't expect that the king would fall and the kingdom would stay intact. So when Adam sinned, the walls closed in. The suffering we endure cannot compare to the glory that awaits us. The suffering that we endure is awaited by every animate and inanimate thing in the universe. The universe suffers with us and longs for our glory. Now that's an amazing reality. It's an incredible doctrine. I don't know if it's new to you or not, but the Apostle Paul means this, and he's not saying something new. It was said all throughout the Scriptures. Let's not forget that to take, um, take note of those two little words at the end of the verse. Those two little words at the end of the verse. Go back to the verse. The suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compl- compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The glory that will be revealed will begin with the sons and daughters of God, and the world awaits it. The suffering that we endure is awaited by every creature, every structure in the created order. The glory that's to be revealed in creation is a shared glory, and the world waits for us to be glorified. Paul says the world groans. Martin Lloyd-Jones added this commentary. In other words, he said, a part of the glory which is going to be revealed to the whole cosmos is what happens to us. We shall be a part of the glory, of his glory. His people are his glory. Friends, we are the glory of God. And if you didn't know that, I'm going to make the point to you. His people are his glory, Lloyd-Jones said. And what he will do to us will make us a part of this mighty demonstration of his own glory when this present time is finished and he is... He, by his coming, rather, ushers in the age to come with all its indescribable glory. The universe awaits the unveiling of God's own crowning achievement. Man, made in his image, filled with his spirit, and Paul celebrates it. And so he says in verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, in the final act, when God reveals to the world, when Jesus returns and reveals to the world that these are my sheep on my right hand and these are the goats on the left, the creation rejoices with us in that and eagerly waits for it. Friends, glory is destiny for the saint. And there's a sense in which the whole created order is destined to the same thing. That's when all of the creation will celebrate the glorification of the sons of God. It's written throughout Scripture. The apostle speaks of our bodies being glorified. And he says in verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, when we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. There is a groaning about this. There's a frustration that I was talking about. So what is Paul doing here? I know we don't read poetry anymore. I think we should. But he's personifying creation. 
It's not a new convention in the, in the Word of God. The prophets have gone here before Paul. The created order is spoken of as having emotional reaction to our redemption and a longing hope for our future glory. Can you imagine the hills and the mountains are longing for you and me to finally be glorified and be recognized as the glorious ones? There's a sense, and not just a poetic sense, but an actual physical, emotional sense in which the creation revels in the promise of future glory. And you say, how can that be? Glory is the state of human perfection that God intended in us from the beginning. It's a new thing, but it's not a new intention. And though we see the majesty of creation, who doesn't like looking at a mountain range? or a mighty river, or a vast ocean, or clouds kissing the peaks of the Appalachians, the Smoky Mountain Trail. Who doesn't revel in those things, in that glory? But the glory that awaits them is far superior, and the hills know it better than we do. None of it may happen, though, until the sons of God appear in their glory. And so the cosmos is said to be waiting and longing and groaning and hoping for the final phase of redemption to take place. Friends, the earth will be renewed right after the, the global warming phase. No, the global warming phase of First Peter. We said the earth will melt with fervent heat. When you're arguing with your liberal friends, say, yes, that's the global warming I'm awaiting. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Isaiah said this very thing that Paul said. Listen to this. He writes, Search from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these shall fail. Not one shall lack her mate. He's talking about the animals and the trees and the hillsides. For my mouth has commanded it and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast a lot for them, and his hand had divided it among them, among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation they shall dwell in it. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Now I take that as the desert won't be a desert anymore. It'll be a fertile plain. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The desert is going to sing, friends. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Creation is longing for you to be glorified by Christ in the final act of history. And then eternity begins. Actually, we're already in eternity, but I think you know what I mean. And so Isaiah said further, he said, You shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. You know the song. The hills are alive with the sound of music. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Who knew they had hands? Julie Andrews knew. <laughs> Verse 23. I was contemplating actually singing that, but I decided to just preach it. We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Friends, creation is giving birth to glory. 
and before birth is labor and is pain and is a form of sorrow. Creation groans and labors with birth pangs, Paul wrote. Remember what Jesus said about that very thing? He said, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. And it's painful. It's part of the curse, remember. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. In other words, the trial is insignificant with the glory on the other end. The labor pains are insignificant with the glory on the other end. And you know very well that had Karen not been with me in that birthing room, I never would have got through that. Pain was too great. Friends, it's the same with creation. The physical world, the whole created order is anticipating the future joy of the glory of the sons of God. But for now, there's a pain and a groaning and the suffering of which the apostle speaks. But he urges us on to let that pale in comparison to the glory he's promised. Our faith in Christ is our connection to God through the Holy Spirit, but it's but a foretaste of the glory. Remember we talked about the earnest, the foretaste, the foreshadowing of future glory. But for now, friends, we have the church. Friends, the church is the glory of God in the earth. We don't seem glorious to ourselves, but to God and the angels, we are a glorious thing. The gifts of the Spirit, the fellowship of the saints, the rejoicing between the members are but a taste of the glory which is to come. And so the apostle depicts our journey as one of laborious and painful anticipation. And so we read not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, faith in Christ. We understand the promise. It eases our consciences. The great questions of eternity have been answered in us by the gospel, and our hearts and minds are at rest, but there is still this longing because it's only a foretaste of what it will be. There's still this longing. There's still this eagerness, this waiting for the adoption. And what is the adoption? The redemption of our bodies. Now, I wasn't going to teach on this this morning, but I hope we all know that when we die, our bodies go into the ground, our spirits go to God. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. And you know, there's sort of that, um, I don't know, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a Hollywood thing that we get to come out and see our own bodies, but there is some of that involved in that. I heard one preacher say, death is like taking off your coat. You just escape, you're just free, your spirit goes to God. But eventually, in this glorious moment that creation longs for, you will be renewed and rejoined with that body in a glorious state. And you'll be back in your body, which will be repaired. Just as Jesus, when he came back, he said, don't touch me, I've not yet gone to my Father. And then he went, he came back, and he was glorified. He had a new body. It was the same old body. It was still healing from the wounds. Still healing. But it would heal once for all once forever. So the church and the gifts and the fellowship and the rejoicing are just a taste of that glory that we will eventually know in Christ. I talked about it last week. Is glory is like clothing. It's like celestial clothing. It's radiant with light. All these ways that the scripture has described it. 
Have you ever felt so tired and disappointed with this life that you prayed, Lord, come quickly? You know we're instructed to pray that all the time, even when life is good. We're like, you know, life, life's not so bad right now, Lord. I, I wouldn't mind staying a few more years. That can happen. I mean, in one moment, you can change your opinion in that, as you probably have experienced. But that's not a sentiment that the faithful should do only in difficult times or difficult circumstances. Remember, remember the angel at the ascension of Christ? We read this from Acts chapter 1. It said, now when he had spoken these things, remember Jesus came back. This is the movie I want to see. You know, we always see the thing, you know, the gospel movie, and they have all these different movies and things, and Jesus goes up and it's kind of over. There's not too many movies about the, the book of Acts. But Jesus came back for many days. I believe it was 40 days and taught something like 500 people. He came back and lived among them in some way. We, it doesn't explain how. But we read this about his ascension in, in the first chapter of Acts. When he had spoken these things, Jesus was preaching, right? While they watched, he was taken up toward heaven as um, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go. As far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. And he said, Stop gazing up into heaven. So what did they do? We read at the end of Luke's gospel, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They weren't glorified yet, but the anticipation of it, based on faith in the promise of God, gave them this great joy. And what is the outworking of joy, friends, if it's not worship of God? And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen, Luke writes. Our rejoicing, friends, is in the promise Jesus went up from their presence with a promise. A promise to return in like manner and to take them, to take us, to take all believers with him. And so he said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Friends, you're not going to live in a shed. Doesn't even sound like you're going to live in a nice apartment. It says mansion in my book. I know your updated one says chamber. I don't like that because it sounds like a cell to me. But I go to, pre I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Friends, it's the business of the saints to rejoice in the promise the fulfillment of the promise, well, that's in God's timing. It's sort of like when someone effectually hears the word of God and is, and is saved. That's in God's timing. We read of such things continually in the word of God, and the Holy Spirit is with us and in us to grant us the ability to see the truth in the promise. It's the power of faith. It's the gift of God. And until now... Every saint has lived and died with that blessed hope, with that blessed assurance. It's an assurance that can only come by faith. It can only come by the indwelling spirit. 
the writer of Hebrews talked about the great roster of saints down through the ages. And what did he say? They received glory? He said no such thing. He said these all died in faith, not having received the promise. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, and embraced and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You know, in hard times, it's nice to just say, well, that's fine. This isn't really my home. Just passing through. There are two earth ages. There's this age and there's the age to come. Jesus uses that language all the time. He makes continual reference to these things. So do the prophets. I spoke of time last week. Friends, the Christian is the only one that has a proper concept of time. Did you ever think about that? To the unbeliever, this present age is all there is. So you better get things done you want done now. Because this time expires. I'm so amazed at how people are always talking about we see all these supplements on TV and you get to look great in your old age. I'm 50, who would believe it? You know, you get all these testimonies. I'm like, yeah, I know you're 50, but you're going to be hopefully 60, 70, or 80, and then what? Or 90 or 100, like Gwen reached 100, and then what? You know, you looked great all these years, but you're still nowhere to be found at the end. It's still time. The believer is hopeful that time will indeed run out. Everyone else is worried that it's going to run out, but that's all they have is time. Friends, the believer has eternity. There's an assurance in that. And we have the Spirit in us to reassure us of that thing. Only the believer can truly understand time. Time is the enemy to the unbeliever because it's constantly running out. The unbeliever lives for this time. It's all he has. We live for a future time, a world without end, where there'll be no more sorrow, nor crying, nor death. And we won't need any supplements. At least I don't think so. Haven't read that. We're heirs to God and joint heirs with Christ. In other words, everything that's his will be ours. That's what inheritance is. We labored over that at some length a few weeks ago. To the Ephesians, Paul said, In the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth. Friends, your loved ones that preceded you to heaven will be gathered together with you in a great glorious assembly, praising God. And creation can't wait for that to happen. If you're in him and he in you, you too will be partakers of this longed-for glory. Remember, we the church are the glory of Christ. The Bible says it, Ephesians chapter 1, he put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Without the church being gathered to Christ, the final promise has not been fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled. Friends, don't try to be a Christian without the church. I know that they make light of the church today as it's sort of a, I don't know, in some places like a necessary evil or, a, or just an accoutrement to faith. But it's not. There's only two rules, friends. You've got to love who Jesus loves, and you've got to walk as Jesus walked. But I have to tell you, um, Jesus loves the church. You, obviously, the first rule is you've got to believe what Jesus believes, and I always say the second verse is you've got to love who Jesus loves. 
Jesus loves the church, my friend. He laid his life down for her. You don't want to go to Jesus and say, I really had no use for the church, which is the fullness of him. You don't want to be saying that to the Lord. The church is his crowning glory. It's his work in the world. Our salvation begins with justification. It proceeds with sanctification, but it culminates in this long-awaited-for glorification. And so Paul wrote to the Philippians, Be confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. Notice he didn't say he'll complete it as long as you live in this world. He said he'll complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It proceeds, it lives on after you. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The unsaved sets his sights on the things of the world. It's all he has. Lloyd-Jones, again, he reminds us, he writes this, The first and second chapters of Second Thessalonians are concerned with this day of the Lord, Jesus Christ, this day of the Lord. Some of the early Christians were confused about this, and so Paul desires to put them right because this is the one thing which enables a Christian to rejoice even in the midst of tribulation. This is the one thing that there is a future glory that awaits you when you're gathered again to the side of the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit. Paul said the same to Titus. He said, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. To the Hebrews, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him. That's the proof of our faith, that we're eagerly, eagerly waiting for Christ. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as it is. It's a transforming reunion. When we see the Lord descend, in the twinkling of an eye, we become like him, and the glory is upon us, and the creation can celebrate. We go on and on citing Scripture that points to the great eternal, terrible day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of redemption, the day of glory for the sons and daughters of God. But I'll end with these words from Peter this morning where he wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away. It's reserved for you in heaven. Friends, you have a reservation. You who are kept by the power of God through faith. Friends, you're kept by the power of God through faith. You, there was nothing you could do to be saved, and there's nothing you can do to stay saved. 
You can't make God love you anymore by doing something, and you can't make him love you any less by doing something. He loved you before time began, reserved this for you through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, not this age, but the age to come. It would be awesome to be here in that moment. And you'll say, so this is the age to come that he kept talking about. I know what this age was that's fading in the distance now, but now we've entered into the age to come. And so he says it's reserved for you in heaven who are kept by the power of God. You're not even keeping yourself. He's keeping you. In this greatly rejoice, but now, for a little while if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Only faith can say that. I haven't seen him, but I love him. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. O Father, give us faith to endure to the end, but those who endure to the end will be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.